First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. The first congregation I served was an old Unitarian society in New England. In my first weeks there, a woman came to see me. She was nearly 90 years old, and she'd been a lifelong member of that church. Her parents had joined in the late 19th century. Her grandparents had been founders. She didn't like change, she said. <laughs> she wasn't sure that she liked me, although I think she sort of was sure, and what she called my point of view. Just remember, she said, I've outlived all of your predecessors, and I will probably outlive you. This, nice, right? First week. This woman was a dedicated conservative in what had become a politically progressive community. She was a liberal Christian in a congregation that had known, a humanist congregation, that had known gracious eras of theological diversity and some fits of intolerance. She'd worked for the U.S. State Department through three wars and for the American Unitarian Association through the merger in 1961 with the Universalist Church of America. She was no stranger to discord. Most votes at most annual meetings had not gone her way for the past 40 years. In the end, she did outlive me there. She died shortly after I accepted a new call in Minnesota and I was so saddened by the news. Over 10 years, we cultivated a respectful love for each other, and what I loved in her most was her commitment to that congregation, no matter what, her fidelity to it, her determination with which she paid her pledge every year, no matter how wayward the budget or insufferably weak in her not humble opinion, the sermons of the young minister. <laughs> She kept her covenants with that people and with their proud history and the promise of their future and with the free faith tradition that they embodied, her way of being in relation, in right relation, her integrity taught me way more about Unitarian Universalism than anything I learned in seminary. So I think of her often on Sunday mornings I heard her voice in the welcome words that Kara gave us today. This is a church bound by, not by creed, but by covenant. We're bound each to each and each to all by what theologian Rebecca Parker calls freely chosen and life-sustaining interdependence. And the central question for us is not what do we believe, but what do we believe in? To what larger love, what people, people's principles, values, and dreams shall we be committed? To whom or what are we accountable? Years ago, I learned from Quaker teachers the practice of asking not who am I, but whose am I? That's about accountability. Whose am I? Your partner your children, your parents, your neighbor, however widely you want to construe your neighborhood, your congregation, who can count on you? What other humans, the ones you know, the ones who are like you, or all of them, all of us? 
For some people, these circles of relation expand to include all living things, every tree, bird, river, the land, and the no longer living ancestors whose bones nourish all of this and all of us, and the not born descendants we will nourish soon. Who do you, um, who are you accountable to? Each of us is implicated in intimate circles of accountability, and they expand ever wider to embrace the whole wide world and the great mystery that's holding it just beyond our understanding, the holy mystery that some of you call God and some call simply conscience. It doesn't matter what you call it. What matters is that you have a ready answer always to whose are you and that you live your days accordingly. D.H. Lawrence says, this is how I save my soul, by accomplishing relationship between me and other people, me and a nation, me and the animals and flowers and skies and sun and stars, me and the moon, me and the timber I'm sawing, the lines of force I follow, me and the dough I need for bread, me and the small bit of gold I've got. This, if we knew it, he said, is our life and our eternity, the subtle, perfected relations between us. So I think of my friend Ariel almost every Sunday morning and the covenant she kept with that church for more than 90 years, even when things didn't go her way, which was most of the time. It was a habit of being, but it was also a deliberate and difficult choice, a disciplined spiritual practice. In a tradition like ours that is so deeply steeped in individualism, it is a spiritual practice for us each to ask, not once, but over and over, how am I going to decide which beautiful, clumsy, imperfect institutions will carry and hold, in the words of one congregation's bond of union, my name, hand, and heart? The life of the spirit, you know, is solitary but we thrive in the plural. That congregation in New England had two founding mission statements because it was the result of a merger in the 19th century of two very different congregations. Ariel and her parents and her grandparents would have spoken and heard this statement on Sunday mornings, their organizing statement, respecting in each other and in all the right of intellect and conscience to be free, and holding it to be the duty of everyone to keep mind and heart at all times open to receive the truth and follow its guidance, we set up no theological condition of membership and neither demand nor expect uniformity of doctrinal belief, asking only unity of purpose to seek and accept the right and true and an honest aim and effort to make these the rule of life. And recognizing the equality of human rights, we make no distinction as the, to the conditions and rights of membership in this society on account of sex or color or nationality. That was written in 1863. And as far as I know, the people there still say it. This beautiful statement that begins with the words respecting in each other. Covenants are old in our tradition. In 1630, John Winthrop, soon to become the first governor of Massachusetts, spoke to this soggy group of fellow Puritans sailing with this high, pious hope aboard the Arabella toward a new life in New England. 
persecuted in their homeland, they made the choice to become undocumented immigrants in America. They are our religious ancestors, awkwardly. Before they came ashore, Winthrop warned them of the cost. Now, the only way to avoid shipwreck, he said, and to provide for our posterity is to follow the counsel of Micah, to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. We must be willing to abridge ourselves of our superfluities. I love that word so much. I made it the little collecting place on my phone for apps I don't use, superfluities. That's the baggage you throw overboard. You don't need that. For the supply of others' necessities, get over ourselves. We must uphold, he said, gentleness, patience, and liberality. We must delight in each other. Delight, not a word you associate with Puritans very often. Delight in each other. Make each other's conditions our own. Rejoice together, mourn together, labor, and suffer together as members of the same body. So shall we keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's an extraordinary declaration of interdependence. So despite their stone-cold reputation, which they earned, their caricatured intolerance, which later ran rampant, these were people who promised to bear each other's burden, to subvert personal interest for the common good. They would serve a larger vision, hold a larger hope. They would care for each other. And the people on the boat that day surely would have caught Winthrop's metaphor, right? They were terrified of crashing on the shore. The only way to avoid shipwreck, spiritual or otherwise, was to keep the unity of spirit and the bond of peace, to make a covenant. The organizing statements of early Universalist and Unitarian congregations in New England echoed that Puritan ideal. The theology changed. Obviously, Unitarian beliefs about the nature of God, Universalist beliefs about the nature of people, but the essential premises of covenanted community, the foundation of their polity, did not change. What the Lord required, what the people needed from each other, was the will to meet their struggle in the plural voice. The other founding statement from that church out east was written in 1825, and it carries a clear trace of that Puritan ideal. It's on a marble plaque in that building. Um, People hardly ever looked at it. It said, we disciples of Jesus Christ, having a firm belief in his religion, that's the part everybody just walked past when I was there, covenant to walk together in the faith and order of the gospel. Even if that gospel was, in fact, a most radical reinterpretation of Jesus's most radical message of love, even if by order they meant the relative chaos of Unitarian religious pluralism, the covenant remains in that particular church and in our tradition to walk together, travel together across dissent, disagreement, conflict, difficult discernment cherishing the way we go as dearly as any outcome. No souls overboard. It is no easy aspiration, as you know. As we all know, it is so easy to get caught up in conflict and lose sight of what unites us, of what the church 
is, which is a beautiful, radical, pluralistic, democratic, non-credal, clear-eyed, open-hearted, compassionate, rigorous, religious way that is as needful in the world now in 2022 as it ever was in 1825 or 1630 or 1877 when this church was founded in Des Moines. What unites us is powerful and fragile and life-saving. As Unitarian Universalists, we're bound not by creed, but by covenant. It's a horizontal, not vertical arrangement. It's a churchy word, but it's one with all kinds of practical implications. Margaret Farley, a theologian and ethicist, Roman Catholic nun who taught at Yale for many years, had a beautiful book called Personal Commitments, Making, Keeping, Breaking. She wrote, history tends to be written in terms of discoveries, inventions, wars, art, law, mechanics, the cultivation of land. But underneath it all lies a sometimes hidden narrative of promises, pledges, oaths, compacts, commitments, some very small. At the heart of any individual story, she says, lies a tapestry of all that person's promises. Farley asked, what is Sheila doing exactly when she says, I do, to Joshua? What does Ruth affect when she signs a business contract? What takes place when Karen spe speaks the Hippocratic Oath as she begins her life as a doctor? What will actually happen when Dan vows to live a celibate and simple life within a community dedicated to God? What happens when the heads of state sign an international agreement regarding the laws of the seas? What changes when John and Peter go to court to adopt their baby girl? What happens when four musicians sit down to play a string quartet, mindful that anybody's bow could slip at any time and ruin the performance, but they will not walk out? To act in these ways is to give our word. We send it out there, and it carries our integrity, our fidelity, our truth. Our word is still ours, but once we give it, it calls back to us from the heart of another person or a circle of people within which it now dwells. Such a commitment does not predict the future or set it in stone. There are no guarantees. It makes a certain kind of future possible. And this, I think, is what happens in a church. In this church, when people sign their names in the membership book, it's a promise that they make, and then you all hold it with them, with you, with each other. Not too long ago, I sat with a woman just a week before her wedding that she'd been planning it for so long before the pandemic. Now it's finally sort of this part of the pandemic, so they're getting married. And she said, I can't speak those words, referring to the words she'd chosen three years ago, this well-worn text she and her partner had chosen as a reading, love is patient, love is kind, love is never irritable, love endures all things. I'm not any of that, she said, and everybody in the room is going to know that. <clears throat> I'm impatient, I'm crabby, I'm selfish, they all know me. I didn't endure my first marriage. Who's going to believe me now? I don't want to stand up there and be a liar at my wedding. 
So underneath these nervous jitters, she had uncovered this serious essential tension. Would her vow be intended and heard as a statement of fact, a boast even, I'm so good, or as an honest aspiration? In the end, she and her partner added a second reading from the writer Wendell Berry. We can join one another, he says, only by joining the unknown. Your union is going where the two of you and time and life and history and the whole world are going to take it. You don't know the road. You have committed your life to a way. So in making their vow, giving their word, they weren't predicting the future or claiming anything. They were stating out loud how they hoped to travel hand in hand toward their life, just like belonging here. A covenant is not a contract. It's not made and signed and sealed once and for all and sent to the attorneys for safekeeping or guarded under glass in a museum. A covenant is not a static artifact, and it is not a sworn oath, whereas, 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 therefore, I'll do this, so help me God, or I'll die. A covenant is a living, breathing hope. It's like breath. And it's made new every day. It can't be enforced by consequences, but it can be reinforced by forgiveness and grace. When we stumble, when we forget, when we mess up, which we do. Someone said to me once, covenant is a promise I keep to myself about the kind of person I want to be. Among all the other people, all the other things. I have to start it over every day. It's intimate justice. It is so easy to lose sight of what unites us. It happens in every congregation. I think it's happened here to some extent. Changes within the community, changes beyond it. Change causes uncertainty. Uncertainty leads to confusion. Confusion becomes conflict, which begins to feel irreparable. But repair is almost always possible. That's what universalism is. And it is holy work, tikkun olam in Judaism, the mending of what's torn. In the intercom this week, you might have seen an announcement from your board of trustees. They're inviting you, and I'm inviting you, to attend a community conversation, to an opportunity to talk together about what matters here, what's happened here in recent months or recent years, however far back you want to go. And part of their announcement says, we've come through many challenges and changes from turnover in ministry and staffing to raising funds for a new kitchen, from the loss of loved ones and cherished leaders to the warm welcome of new members, from pandemic shutdown to long-awaited reopening. We know our core principles are strong, but it's felt sometimes as if change itself is the only constant. And with it, inevitably, have come conflict, discouragement, signs of erosion of trust. As Unitarian Universalists, we're called to speak our truth in love, to hear the truths of others with open heart and mind. So it's a simple invitation, and it is heartfelt. We're asking you to sign up for a small group conversation. Choose one of the dates between late October and early December. There are 14 of these scheduled. You just have to come to one if you want, and they'll be small, intimate, eight or 10 people in a circle. 
and each will be hosted by a board member. I'll be facilitating. We're inviting you to share concerns, confusion, grief, hurt, even anger at changes that have not felt right or somehow feel unresolved. You might talk about your love for this community, what it's meant to you to be part of it, what's at stake. And more importantly, more importantly, you'll hear what others say, which you can't know till they speak it in your presence. These conversations are not about problem solving or fixing anything the way you'd fix a machine or a broken car. They're about telling your story and owning the story of your church altogether, which is a beautiful, proud, healing story. This is about reweaving the bonds of community. The bond of union in this church was adopted in January 1896, 19 years after the congregation was founded. Maybe it took them that long to settle down and settle in or find a pen or get to know each other, understand together what was going to be needed to carry the ship safely from one Sunday to the next, one century to the next and beyond. Your bond of union says, we associate ourselves together for the study and practice of morality and religion as interpreted by the growing thought and noblest lives of humanity, hoping thereby to prove helpful to one another and to promote truth, righteousness, and love in the world. That's beautiful. And it's in your bylaws still. It's in the air you breathe here. It whispers your intention. It calls you back, coaxes you back to something beautiful and true and good. Avoiding shipwreck, if you can. Doing justly, loving mercy, going humbly, delighting in each other. In the words of John Winthrop, of all people, rejoicing together, mourning together, laboring and suffering together as members of one body, so shall we keep the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. More recently, we have the words of Mara Coyle, Unitarian Universalist. She's a member of the church I served in Minnesota, and I'll tell you, her wisdom was needed no less there than here and in every single one of our congregations. How to be a good Unitarian. Show up. Speak up. Quiet down. Listen. Recognize the wisdom around you. Feel the pain and sit with it. Let it go. Believe, doubt, Question, challenge, honor the past, envision the future, celebrate now, be grateful, remorseful, forgiving, clean up your mess, hold doors for others, invite them in, show up, speak up, quiet down, listen, agitate, appreciate, congregate, consecrate. Let the sun shine in and expose the darkness. Let your tears stream down. Throw back your heads. Let your song be heard. Know that you are not alone. There are all these others here who show up, speak up, quiet down, listen. Amen. For just a few moments, let's hold silence together. 